take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 15, if you would, and we'll look at verses 11 through 24. And you may wonder what this has to do with an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll tie that together later. But for right now, let's just give attention to God's Word. Of course, this is the parable of the prodigal son, and we read, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his poverty and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with, uh, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against, you, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Amen. That sends a reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please bow with me, if you would, as I pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the time to be in your word and to hear it taught and preached. And I pray this morning, Lord, even as we do an overview and we just look at the, the highest level of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning, Lord, even though we're not getting down into the weeds and the specifics of of, of scripture we just pray that you would speak to us lord let let the preaching this morning be no less encouraging than when we go verse by verse through a text but lord strengthen us as your people convict us where we need to see our sin lord cause us to repent that we would turn and and receive the favor <coughs> of the lord we thank you O oh god and pray these things in your name amen well, if you'd like, you can, I encourage you to turn to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And uh, we'll be looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, other books as well this morning. And while you're turning there, let me just say this. That, that one view that people sometimes have of history is to see it primarily as the story of accomplishments 
of famous men and some famous women too as well who single-handedly changed the world. That's how they like to view history is to sort of see this, uh, see it that way. Um, and sometimes people who do that will sometimes approach the Old Testament the same way. They look at the Old Testament narratives or the Old Testament stories and they're searching for a hero, someone whose life can inspire them and instruct them in how they ought to live. And so they love it when they read about Moses and Joshua or Abraham and David or even Ruth and, and Abigail. And, and they really oftentimes like to gravitate towards the success stories in the Old Testament. You know, the exodus or the conquering of the land or the, the establishment of the monarchy of, of the kingship in Israel. And they oftentimes like to breeze over those less pleasant parts of the Old Testament. You know, like the book of Judges. You know, that wasn't so great. Or even um, the exile into Babylon. Well, maybe except Daniel. You know, everybody wants to be a Daniel, right? And so, you know, we might uh, read the book of Daniel. But otherwise, we just sort of uh, pass over that. Well, people who approach history that way and, and scripture that way, when it comes to Ezra and Nehemiah, which, by the way, they used to originally be just one book in the Hebrew, uh, they just sort of want to skip over the first six chapters. Because Ezra doesn't even come onto the stage until chapter 7, and the book's only 10 chapters long, so for most of the part, he's not even there. Um, but then they also like Nehemiah, you know, because he's the kind of leader that we like in our country, right? Strong, decisive leader. That's the kind of people we'll follow and that, that we want. And so, you know, you hear probably more people talk about Nehemiah in, in his example. As a matter of fact, let me read you a quote from a book uh, that just sort of illustrates this. This person says, From Nehemiah, I learned how to plan my work, organize my time and resources, integrate my duties for the total operation of the company, motivate others and measure the results. I learned the importance of setting realistic goals. I found out what to do before I reached my objectives. And sometimes that's how people will view books of the Old Testament. And that's what comes to the minds of some, that they see Nehemiah more as a, a management guru than, than anything else. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but there are preachers who preach the book of Ezra and Nehemiah in that way. But I would suggest to you that these books, like I said, which were originally one book, are about neither Ezra or Nehemiah. Like I said, Ezra doesn't come on the scene until chapter 7, right? But rather, it's a book about God. It's about a book about the work that God is doing in the midst of his people through a, a variety of leaders and other people partially accomplishing the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem after the disaster of the Babylonian Empire. You see, if I could summarize it in the, the, the shortest way possible, I would say it's a story of God's faithfulness. A story of God's faithfulness. And I, I hope as we go through these books over the, the next number of months that uh, you will see that more and more and more. It sort of reminds me, what I'm talking about sort of reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, he goes, In Christ Jesus, then, 
I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now you think, what? That sounds pretty arrogant. You know, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And you're thinking, come on, Paul. You know, and then you read the rest of the verse. And you go, okay, I see where you're coming from. He says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. In other words, I'm not going to brag about myself. I'm only going to brag about what I see Jesus doing in and through me to bring obedience to the Gentiles. And in the same way, Ezra and Nehemiah glories in God and what God is doing through them for the spiritual strengthening of his people. So the book of Ezra and Nehemiah should then be read as a testimony to God's faithfulness to renew and to sanctify his church. And so I hope it will be an encouragement as we go through this study. You see, God is faithful and at work in and through us in the messiness of life and the ministry in this fallen world. And that faithfulness should be celebrated, brothers and sisters. As we see God at work in us, as sometimes as imperfect as it looks, we should celebrate that. You know, even when sin continues to be evident in our lives and in our churches, we should celebrate what God is doing. Sometimes I think we can become so focused on our struggle with sin that it robs us of the joy of seeing what the Lord is doing. Amen? And we need not to do that. So I want us to, to see God is at work among His people, restoring their relationship with Him. And so this morning I want to look at three things. I want to sort of look at this theme that I've already sort of laid out about God's faithfulness. Look at the structure of the book and then just sort of uh, talk about some lessons that we could take away from this. And then next week we'll jump into the book of Ezra. But for the most part, like I said, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are not the records of great heroic feats. They read more like the confession of a humble prodigal like we read in the story of the prodigal son, the youngest son. You know, it bears uncanny resemblance to the experiences of the younger son, traveling from a far country back to his father's home, you know, uh, being humbled by his circumstances in which he was in. We see the same things happening with the Israelites. And so their journey back from Babylon uh, or Persia to uh, Judah was really a profoundly spiritual journey. It, it involved a confession of sin and, and even separation from their former loves that the people of God had. And so the process, at least for the Israelites in the Old Testament, you know, as they returned to God was sort of a process, you know, like we sometimes talk about three steps forward and two steps back. You know, it wasn't just a smooth uh, path forward but it was, a, it was a struggle. But as is often the case in true repentance, it is the Father's drawing love that prevails over His people's waywardness and the, of their hearts. Right? It's always God's love of Him calling us to Himself that overcomes the waywardness of our hearts. If you're here this morning and you are struggling with sin, and you are wrestling. And you're just like, Lord, I know that the things that I do dishonor you. And I want to do that. But God, I just there's such a duplicity in my heart. I don't know what to do, Lord. Cry out for Him to draw you to Himself through His great love and mercy. 
He is a great God who will do that. Now, as, as we look at the exile, we, we know that it is uh, God's discipline for uh, the nation's sin. Um, and if you look at your in your bulletin, I put sort of a rough outline there just to sort of help guide you uh, a little bit. This is an, an outline for the entirety of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really sort of leading up to Ezra and Nehemiah, what happened. In uh, 940 B.C., we see King Solomon. He marries foreign wives. You know, one of the things that has... I'm reading through the Old Testament right now. Sorry, I'm just sort of free association, I guess, right now. Going from one thought to the next. Um, I'm reading through the Old Testament and reading about David and Solomon and moving into kings and stuff. And uh, one of the things that has always struck me as a Christian is how David is called a man after God's own heart. And yet he's a murderer. He's an adulterer. And actually, if you really want to get down to it, people, he's a terrible parent, too, as well. Okay? And uh, you look at this and you think, how is this man a man after God's own heart? And then you read into Solomon's life, and you see that with Solomon, while he uh, you know, was so thankful to God for his wisdom, and, and uh, he was the wisest man who ever lived, he didn't have a heart after God like his father David did. As a matter of fact, his heart was divided. It was divided amongst his wives, and therefore... Uh, he would do things like worship the Lord and yet set up temples for the gods of his wife. So there was a lot of duplicity there in Solomon's heart. But with David, even though he was a man who sinned and sometimes sinned awfully, he was a man whose heart was truly set upon the Lord, who he desired to please God. But Solomon wasn't like that. And just 10 years after Solomon, you know, was marrying, you know, wives and stuff, then the kingdom is taken away from his son. In 930 B.C., the kingdom is divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, of course, in the northern kingdom, they had all kinds of idol worship and stuff. And in the southern kingdom, they still had the worship of the temple. But oftentimes, that was corrupted or it was very insincere. And so what I want you to see in this timeline is, you know, from 930 to 722, almost 200 years, the Lord sent his prophets to his people to call them to repent. Talking about love. You know, if you're, if you're a parent, probably even if you're an aunt and an uncle, you probably understand this love to some extent. But if you're a parent, you really understand sometimes how much you have to be pushed Sometimes to love your children, especially if they're not walking with the Lord. And, and uh, you know, here God is um, working with his people to call them to himself. But they don't listen. They just continue in rebellion. And then finally in 722 B.C., the Lord brings Assyria in to carry Samaria and the inhabitants there to Assyria. And then they bring people from Assyria and transplant them into Samaria and then the Lord continues to reach out and to call to the southern tribes to, to repent and turn to him. And finally, in 587, God does the same thing only with Babylon and the southern kingdom. And so now the people of God were deported to the very countries whose idols they worship. You know, you could sort of think of it this way, that uh, as Israel pursued the idols of the nations, first their hearts journeyed into that country, 
And then in exile, the rest of them followed as well. You know, you know, you think about it early on um, in the history of Israel, they followed the Lord. They loved the Lord God and they worshiped him, especially under Joshua's leadership and David's leadership. But 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 God's people continued to, to yearn after the gods of the surrounding nations and wanted to live like the nations that were around them. Now, kids, let me tell you this. If you've grown up in the church, and this isn't actually just to kids. It could be young people. Even us adults struggle with this. Sometimes you can grow up in the church, though, kids, and you can sometimes wonder, Mom, Dad, why won't you let me do what my friends are doing? Why don't you let me watch the movies that they're watching? Why don't you let me go to the places they go? Why don't you let me do those things that they do? Why don't you let me live like them? And sometimes you can sit in church and you can think, boy, I just wish I could do that. And that's oftentimes your heart being drawn to the world, just like the Israelites were being drawn to the nations. Why can't I worship Yahweh the way that they're worshiping the Baals or the Asherah pole? Why can't I worship Yahweh that way? Maybe I'll just worship them. And their hearts will constantly be drawn away. Well, if you uh, look at Second Chronicles, just right before Ezra here, Second Chronicles 36, look at verse 11. Let me just read down through verse 16. Zedekiah, he was the king of Israel. It says here in this passage that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He, he didn't humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He's even stiffened his neck, it says, and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then it talks about his officers. All the officers of the priest and the people, likewise, were exceedingly unfaithful. They weren't just unfaithful people. They were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nation. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent, uh, excuse me, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So he just continued to send his prophets. But it says, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And then we read in verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. And, and then you could read on through the end of verse 21, but the, the bottom line is he sent them into exile, destroyed Jerusalem, sent them into exile. And so just as the prodigal son was in a foreign land and, and began to be in want. So Israel found themselves in great distress in Babylon. They were slaving, being slaves of others. As a nation, it had joined itself to strangers and now it was under the mercies of these foreign gods. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36 there's this lament in, in the middle of, of uh, Nehemiah's book that says, Behold, we are slaves to this day. This is Israel talking to the Lord, you know, just sort of pondering their situation. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. In other words, God, you gave us this as, as the promised land, and yet now we're slaves. You think about that and the subtlety of sin that comes into our lives. 
that you know sin does really a good job of covering its tracks, doesn't it? It, it blinds the eyes of the sinner, and we don't always see that the things that we do are truly sinful. But as we live in that sin, then then sin often moves the sinner into more sin and to more evil. And that's not and that's true not only on a personal level, but that can be true on a corporate level as well. Whether that be in churches or in families or in institutions, we all can be led astray to the subtlety of sin. But you know, the thing that we have to remember is that God is faithful. And He says that He will always keep a remnant. And so uh, we see God's faithfulness even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. This, though, means we must not be like the Israelites and try the patience of the Lord, but to seek to follow after Him. So let's just look at the structure of the book a little bit, okay? The structure of Ezra and Nehemiah really is around three accounts of the people returning from Babylon and Persia to Judah. Uh, first of all, under Zerubbabel in Ezra chapter 1, uh, verses uh, chapters 1 through 6, and then uh, chapter 7 through 10 in Ezra, uh, Ezra brings a group back. And then, finally, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 3, uh, Nehemiah, there's a group that returns under them. And under each of these returns, it's authorized by the Persian authority. They give them permission to go back to their land. Each experienced oppositions uh, to the reconstruction efforts that they tried to do. Each overcame that opposition with divine help from God. And each return resulted in the completion of a difficult reconstruction project, whether that's the temple or the walls of Jerusalem, or whether it is even reestablishing what it means to be God's covenant people and living in covenant community. And then in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 12, the Judean community sort of celebrates the completion of the work of the temple and the wall, and they're all excited to renew their covenant with the Lord. Uh, but when you look at how the book closes in Nehemiah chapter 13, it's really a very depressing chapter um, in which all of the previous achievements of Nehemiah are threatened as soon as he leaves them to go back to serve as cupbearer to the king. And then he comes back, it seems like everything that he's done has been undone. It just reminds us that a greater work of God will be needed to achieve the fullness of what the prophets promise, which is nothing less than the complete and glorious redemption of God's people. And so we, we end the book of Nehemiah with a sense of waiting, of waiting, understanding that God is not done in terms of redeeming His people. So, you know, that's sort of a, a quick overline. Now, go back to the beginning, uh, Ezra 1.1. And if you look at Ezra 1, 1, and 2, and then look back just a page before at the end of 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 36, verses 20 and 21, you'll see that they're the same, that they tie in together, they dovetail together. Where, where Chronicles ends, Ezra picks up. And, and what, what's going on is, is that King Cyrus of Persia has just conquered Babylon. And, and he inherits this situation in which most of the residents of his kingdom are exiles from other countries. And so his solution to rule over all these people is to release them to go back to their home country. 
placing carefully, of course, certain leaders over them to watch over them, but then also funding and rebuilding their national institutions. And for, so for the Jews, that meant rebuilding the temple for them. Now, can you imagine that? You know, that, that Cyprus himself is going to pay to rebuild the temple. And, and not only does he do that, but he also sends the vessel, the temple vessels, back with them that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem and he put in the house of his own God. We see that in Ezra chapter 1, verse 7. And, you know, uh, you, you see throughout different books of the Old Testament during that time of the exile, uh, them make reference to these vessels. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Daniel talks about the temple vessels that were taken into exile. Um, in Daniel chapter 5, uh, Belshazzar, he brought out these sacred goblets that he had in his very last feast <laughs> as he was praising his false gods um, before the kingdom was taken out of his hand. These were the temple vessels. Uh, Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 12, when the envoy from Babylon was coming to, um, to check out his, his uh, kingdom and all the riches of his kingdom, you know, we see that uh, Hezekiah showed them these vessels. And so now, after them being taken, they're being returned home. Now you might wonder, why would Cyrus do this? Why would he pay? Here's a pagan king, you know, you know, paying for the temple, allowing the people to go back home. Well, of course, the short answer is, it's part of God's plan, okay? That's the short answer. But even from a human perspective, you know, his idea is, is that he wanted to strengthen the various parts of his kingdom by creating uh, loyal dependents, loyal servants, loyal citizens. And what's going to endear their heart more to him than if he allows them to return home and he reestablishes their institutions. And so that's what he does. And so the 70 years of exile that was prophesied in Jeremiah 25 is now completed and it's now for time for the Jew for the Judean exiles to return home. But when they go home, it's not easy. Uh, it's not a simple task. The, the city has been devastated. And if you read the end of Second Chronicles, you'll see what that devastation looked like. But the temple light lay in ruins and the city walls were torn down. And, and can you imagine going back as a group of people uh, to a city and just seeing all the work that needed to be done. I mean, the costs alone would have been astronomical. Even with the help of the Persians, it would have been a big task. And it would have required everybody in the community to pitch in. So you've got to get everybody to work together in one common direction. And then we also see that there were those that opposed this work as well. And so that was, that made it very difficult as well. So. They needed God's provision and God's protection. And what we see is, is though that God does stir the hearts of his people to want to rebuild the temple and then eventually to rebuild the wall as well. And so in one sense, there was great accomplishment, but in another sense, there wasn't, the, the, the accomplishments were sort of little. The temple was rebuilt, but it was done 20 years later. Um, those who saw the first temple, the old temple, People like me, you know, that were there when the first temple was there and they saw the outline for the second temple, they wept because they, they thought this is like nothing compared to the glory of the first temple. And so they thought it very lacking. We see that in Haggai chapter 2. 
And so the restored community suffered uh, from uh, a lack of vision, but they also struggled with a half-heartedness, and they still struggled with the sin that their fathers struggled with, as we'll see we go through this. And so anyway, uh, there, there was all kinds of struggles, and we see uh, the, in Nehemiah 13, I won't go through it, but you can read through uh, Nehemiah 13 and just see the different struggles. They broke the Sabbath day. You know, they weren't paying the priests and the Levites. So the priests and the Levites were leaving because they had to go find jobs somewhere so they could provide for their family. You know, just all kinds of a sin and what we would call dysfunction, you know, today. But sin because they didn't follow what the Lord says. But in another sense, the, the three returns of exile were a glorious demonstration of God's faithfulness and forgiveness. Repeatedly in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the Lord stirring up his people to, to give and to work and to smooth out obstacles both inside and outside. And so we see this wonderful work that's being done. That sort of brings us to the lessons that we can see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm just going to pick out a couple because... We're going to jump into the text and, and look at this week by week. But Ezra and Nehemiah's greatest work was not so much the brick and the mortar stuff that they did with rebuilding the temple or rebuilding the wall, but really it was taking a biblical vision of hope and communicating that vision to the people of God. It was taking a biblical vision of hope and communicating that vision to the people of God. Uh, Nehemiah took a people who were used to being defeated, having God's name disgraced, and he turned them into a lean, mean building machine, if you could put it that way. But look at Nehemiah chapter 2, if you would. Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. We read, then, then I said to them, of course this is Nehemiah, you, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lives, lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come! Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. One commentator uh, pointed out uh, that there's a little bit of irony in uh, Nehemiah's statement. He says, you see the trouble we're in? How... Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? And the reality is the answer is like, no, we don't see that. You know, they were just living there. They weren't motivated at all to do anything about their situation until Nehemiah showed up. Uh, but uh, anyway, but he was bringing the vision of, of who God is and what he call, how he calls us to live. And in one sense, that's sort of the, the task of a preacher that he does every week, right? that I'm going to share with you what God's Word says. Not my words, not what I think, not what I think the church ought to be or how we ought to function, but what God says. I like what John Owen uh, says as he describes the pastor's task in preaching. He said, the pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> right? And that's true. You know, sometimes we come in, we're so discouraged, we just need to be comforted and, and, and encouraged. But there's other times we come in, we're way too comfortable in our life, and we need to be afflicted. And that's what the Word of God does. That's not what I do. That's what the Word of God does. And we're surrounded by people who appear to be living at ease, 
while oftentimes their lives are just a terrible mess. And for some of them, their profession of faith barely matches their lifestyle. They'll say they're a Christian, but when you look at their life, you don't see Galatians 5. You don't see the fruit of the Spirit. You don't see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it seems like for every person that's hungry to grow in the Lord and to know Him, it seems like there's five people who are content to inhabit a burned-out shell of a life, a, a mere shadow of what God intended them to be. And so the role of the pastor is to, to bring that vision of hope and challenge in every area of life. That's also the goal of the heads of the households as well, to bring that vision to their families that they might see and know who God is. And, and I think we have to ask ourselves as we think about these things, are we choosing the easy options in life because we don't really believe that God can bring something great into our lives? Do you ever feel like that? That maybe we just sort of live the comfortable things of life because we're really not looking for God to do much of anything. Maybe a little thing here and there. Maybe to cause our church to grow a little bit. Maybe to grow enough that maybe we have to get a bigger building, you know, or maybe enough that, you know, we need to take our elementary Sunday school class and break it up into two classes. You know, maybe those kind of things we're looking for. And yes, God does call us to be faithful in the little things. But let me ask you this. Do we believe that God can use those mundane moments of life, of a life of faith, to do great things? Do we think that God will take even the mundane moments of our lives and He will use those things to do great and mighty things for the building up of His kingdom and for His glory? What about your church? Do you expect to see God do great things here? Do you pray? Is that a priority in your life? Is that something that you are aggressively appealing to before the Lord? Lord, do this at Kirk of the Plains. Lord, would you open the doors? Lord, would you cause us to share the gospel with those who do not know you? That they may come to faith in you, Lord, and they may sit in these seats and they may worship and they may praise you. Lord, may you take the person who has nothing but animosity against you right now and may you give them a new heart. Do you expect the Lord to do that? Are you praying for that? Or are you content to just sort of survive, to go along? Now, I understand it's very intimidating to ask God to do a mighty work in your life because before God does a great work, He always prepares the vessel, right? And that means He's going to prepare the people. The way that a wise pastor I knew once put it is, he said, God does not use a man greatly until He wounds him deeply. And if we're going to pray for God to do such great things, I will guarantee you I know where God's going to start. He's going to start with our hearts. And He's going to deal with us. And then He will do His work. It may seem uh, too costly. You know, we sort of like the comfy chair. You know, it also may seem too dramatic and maybe even unreformed to expect God to do anything uh, dramatic. Uh, and so we might settle for what's comfortable. But you know, uh, we are part of an army 
that has been given a great commission. We've received our marching orders to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And of course those divine instructions don't come uh, by themselves. They come with the divine promise. And behold I am with you always to the end of the age. That means if God is with us no task is impossible. That we can go we can share the gospel and people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see like Nehemiah we need to hear the challenge that is posed by God's promises because oftentimes our vision is too small. Now, having said that, there's no guarantees uh, of earthly success. Even those who are faithfully following a divinely given vision, you know, take Nehemiah, for example, right? You know, look at Nehemiah. Look at all the work he did. Look at the reforms that he brought. Ezra, the reforms he brought. And yet, at the end of the book, you know, we see the people, many of them, in the same place that they are. Um, and, and, and you just think, was that a waste? But let me ask you this. Think about a church plant. God has blessed us greatly, brothers and sisters. We've made it through a worldwide pandemic. We sort of started as a church with no core group, nothing. We just started from scratch. Went through a worldwide pandemic. And God is causing us to grow. And that's great. But there are many church plants that don't do that. There are many church plants that lasted three months or six months and they closed their door. Maybe they lasted a year. Maybe they lasted two years and then they closed their door. The city wasn't greatly impacted by that church plant. They were struggling and maybe they couldn't hardly uh, make it. You know, just think of all the effort and the money and the sacrifice that was given to do that work of church planting and yet now it no longer even exists and people didn't even know it was there two years after the fact. Is that really a, a work that's worth it? Well, just think about the person maybe who came to faith in Jesus Christ. The one person who came to faith in Jesus Christ in the six months that that church plant was open. Or think about the individual or the family whose faith was strengthened and who they are walking with the Lord with much more zeal and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will be in heaven for eternity worshiping the Lord. Do you think they think it's worth it? You see, you never know how God is using what He calls us to do. Especially when it's a failure in the eyes of the world. And maybe sometimes it's even seen as a failure in the eyes of the church. And yet sometimes God is doing mighty and great things. So how do you put a, a value on faithful obedience. So I think that's one thing to consider as we think about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. I think another thing that we need to understand is how God uses all different kinds of people to carry out his plan, um, even in spite of their shortcomings. I mean, you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, very different people. Nehemiah, like I said, he's the kind of guy we like. He's a political leader. He's a cupbearer to the king. He's, he's a go-getter, aggressive. He gets things done. He doesn't hesitate. Ezra, he's a scribe. He's a teacher, consensus builder, you know, very different leadership style. And, and you see this as you look at Ezra and Nehemiah. One problem that they both dealt with was mixed marriages. You know, kids, I don't know if your parents have ever told you this, but they said when you get older and you get married, you're not to marry an unbeliever. Well, that's not your parents' opinion. That's what God says in His Word. Don't mix 
and Mary with unbelievers. Okay? Well, the, the Israelites had. And so Ezra dealt with this problem in Ezra chapter 9. And the way he deals with it is, is he does it with great passion and zeal and with much prayer. He, he tears his clothes. He pulls out the hair from his head and from his beard. He falls down before God in personal repentance. And, and as the leadership is watching this man of God do this, in response, the leaders of the people formed an assembly and they joined Ezra in his repentance. And only then did Ezra give instructions to the people, to the Jews, to separate from their foreign wives. And of course, the, the community responded with agreement. They heard the word of the Lord and they applied the word of the Lord. There were some uh, difficulties, some issues to be worked out, but they worked through them and they applied what God's word said and they repented. And so we see Ezra teaching the word, applying the word, and that's great. Nehemiah, totally different situation. You look at Nehemiah 13, verses 23 through 28, his, his, his approach is very confrontational. He calls out curses on the offenders, and he beats some of them, and he launches into this speech condemning them. And the hair that Nehemiah pulls out is not his own hair, but it's the hair of the people who are sinning. You don't believe me? Look at Nehemiah 13.25. So instead of the community correcting themselves, you see Nehemiah correcting the community. Well, the point of this is not really so much to contrast these two leadership styles. You know, it's really to see that God raises up diverse people and he uses them in, in different ways. And of course, like I said, we, we sort of like the Nehemiah kind. We, that's the guy we like. We tend to devalue the slower consensus building approach to building community, to building the church. We wanna, we wanna see results, we wanna get things done. But you see, the purpose of this book is really not to exalt one leadership style over another, but it's to point out that neither Ezra nor Nehemiah were able to bring the people of their day into the promised rest that God had said that he would give them. But there was a need for another to come to bring true rest to his people as he rules over their hearts and their lives. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah are meant to whet our appetites for the real thing, for the one who is to come. Kids, do you know who that is? Who is the one to come? It's Jesus Christ. He is the one that will come, the Messiah. And so in, in their leadership styles, Ezra and Nehemiah showed that they were not the Messiah and that the Messiah would be one who would not just be a good leader, but he would be someone who is perfect. He, he would be someone who would enable his people to have hearts that were wholly fixed upon the Lord. No more half-heartedness. But he would call them not to duplicity, but to a single heart. You think about the passage that we read this morning that said that you are to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And so the function of Ezra and Nehemiah is to point us to Jesus Christ. And as much as Ezra and Nehemiah called people, God's people to repentance and obedience, they couldn't bring salvation to God's people. Only Jesus can bring full salvation and rest to his people. Now, you might be here this morning and you may have a vision of accomplishing great things for God, and yet you may find yourself very frustrated by circumstances or, or by the fact that you're just making small progress 
in whatever it is the Lord has called you to do. Maybe you're experiencing opposition from the world or from other places and you're very frustrated. And sometimes God doesn't open the doors for us in our attempts to serve Him and to expand His church. Sometimes we work hard for Christ's kingdom and we see very little fruits for our labor. But don't miss what God is doing in the midst of sometimes chaos and struggle. Even in small ways, God is at work. And as much as we want to put ourselves in the middle of ministry, and we do, brothers and sisters, let's just be honest. Okay, we oftentimes uh, look at the ministry that we are doing in the church from how it affects us and, and our personal perspective. But the reality is, that's not the way that God calls us to. Christ is the center of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Not us. And we must approach our service with a desire to see people fall at His feet and to worship Him and to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love, not of us and our service to Him. We preach this not only to those in the church, but even to those outside the church. And, and think about it. You know, as we have the privilege to share the gospel with others, we are not entrusting with the building of, of the walls of a city or even a temple. But, brothers and sisters, we are given the privilege, all of us as his children, in seeing men and women join together to be living stones, as Peter talks about, to build the heavenly Jerusalem, to be a holy temple to the Lord in which God dwells by His Spirit. That's what we get to participate in. Right? Praise be to God for His faithfulness. Amen? Let's bow our, 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 let's bow our hearts before the Lord. Just take a few moments to meditate upon the Word and to respond to the Lord silently in prayer. faithful and loving God we want to praise and thank you so much that you were a patient long-suffering God who you don't give up on us easily you continue to pursue your people and to call them to yourself and Lord I pray that you would do that as we study that go through these books and study them God that you would open our eyes to our sin Maybe, Lord, we're aware of the sins that we wrestle with and, we, and we're so focused upon the sins that we wrestle with that, Lord God, maybe we don't see other ways in our lives in which we sin and, and dishonor you. But we just pray that you would open our eyes to see ourselves for who we are, but also, Lord, to be reminded of your great love to call us to yourself, to walk 
in obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you'll do a mighty work in our congregation through this series. Um, that God, you would bring revival in our midst, in our hearts, especially in the heart of the guy standing behind the pulpit. Lord, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed. But I also pray, Lord, that through this series, that there might be those who don't know you, Lord, who would come to faith in you as they, they see you and behold you as, as you truly are, God. A God who is great and awesome, who is holy and righteous and perfect, who loves your people so much. Oh, Lord, may we... May you do your mighty work in the, the strengthening and the building up of your church and your kingdom. We pray in your name. Amen.